Well, let's turn together to John chapter 6. Um, so John chapter 6 and a reading this morning is in verse 35 through verse 40. John 6, 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this uh, powerful passage. We pray that you would help us to understand it now. In Christ's name, amen. So one of the expectations that Scripture places upon Christians is that they be grounded in the knowledge of salvation. Colossians 1.23, continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast. In other words, we are not to be doubtful or ignorant people, lest we be like Reuben in Genesis chapter 49 verse 4, unstable as water, or lest we be like blind men who are apt to fall, or like the Samaritans who worshipped what they did not know, as uh, John 4.22 says, and one day they would claim to be on the side of the Jews, the next day, they would hate them. We don't want to be like that. So we have to make a real effort to understand what Scripture actually says about the Lord Jesus Christ and the kind of salvation that is found in Him. So that we may be like the wise man in Matthew 7 who built his house on the rock. And in this passage... The Lord Jesus really gives us four lessons on that subject. Four lessons concerning Jesus Christ and salvation. And the first lesson here is that Jesus Christ is a sufficient Savior. A sufficient Savior. Look at verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. The expression I am here is emphatic in the Greek. Ego eimi. You could even translate, translate that expression as, I myself am. Or else you could visualize it in your mind as being, in all caps, I am. Because in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the phrase, I am who I am, in Exodus 3.14, is actually translated with the words, ego eimi. In other words, Christ is echoing here the passage of the burning bush. He wants his audience to know that he is the God who spoke to Moses, 
who set the bush aflame without consuming it, whose very presence made the ground holy. Especially because these people have already the context of the Exodus in mind. They've brought up the manna in verse 31. And as a response in verse 32, Jesus told them that the manna had not been the true bread out of heaven. But rather it had been a symbol meant to give way to a reality. A shadow meant to give way to a substance. A dead thing. If you kept the, the manna overnight. It would breed worms and stink. Christ, on the other hand, is the bread of life. Not only in the sense that He is immortal, His years never come to an end, but also in the sense that He is the beginning and end of all spiritual life. Now, frankly, at this point, this is where the analogy of bread sort of falls apart. Why do I say that? Because every analogy, of course, falls apart at some level. And the Lord is comparing himself to bread here because his audience, of course, has the manna in, in mind and also the feeding of the 5,000. And Christ is like bread in that he sustains life, but he is unlike it in that he actually also starts life. Nobody ever ate a piece of bread and came to life by doing so. However, the Lord Jesus, as he said in verse 33, he gives life to the world. So he creates life and he sustains it. The word for life here, by the way, has a definite article in the original. The Greek says, I am the bread of the life. So we're not talking about the mere kind of physical existence that an unregenerate man or woman may be able to experience in this world because the unbeliever lives as one who is really under condemnation. Under condemnation. He's like a criminal waiting for his execution. The sentence has already been passed on him. It's in chapter 3, verse 36, I believe. Verse 33. He, verse 36 of chapter uh, 3 where Christ says, He who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. He already is under condemnation. So sure, he can enjoy a thing or two. Uh, you can take in the gifts that the Lord provides to all mankind by his sheer mercy, the sunshine, the rain, the affections of family and friend and so forth and so on. But you are still as good as dead. And life for the unbeliever is merely a waiting room to which the hangman comes calling. It's a kind of antechamber to hell. And this world, which is the Father's world, is crying out for His blood continually. Because Proverbs 11.20 says that those of crooked heart are an abomination to the Lord. So the earth that God has created wants to... Open up and swallow you alive. The sun wants to scorch you. The clouds want to suffocate you. The thread that hangs the stars wants to snap so that the very luminaries of heaven can crush you. The oxygen wants to run itself through your nostrils until your lungs pop. And Satan wants to rent you to pieces and drag your soul down to hell. The unbeliever. Is as good as dead. And he desperately needs life. That is the good news of the gospel. 
The life that Jesus is talking about here, spiritual life, reconciliation with God and the full enjoyment of God himself. That's what Jesus is able to provide. He takes the curse that has fallen on the sinner, the very sentence of death that we have just spoken of, and he dies as a transgressor, an offender of the divine law. And then he imputes his righteousness to the believer. And in doing so, he provides life, life. He brings us into fellowship with the living God. You say, but doesn't God dwell in unapproachable light? In the words of Job 4.18 and 15.15, doesn't he charge even his angels with error and considers heaven itself not pure? Isn't he too lofty to relate to us who are lowly creatures, even if we were sinless? That's Job's Job's objection in chapter 9, verse 32. He says, He's not a man as I am, that I may answer to him, or that we may go to court together. In other words, I can't just approach that august majesty. He's not like me. You see, the Old Testament saints perceived a fundamental problem in relating to God because they were creatures. And God is not like them. Because of the infinite distance between God, the divine nature, and human nature. But that, all of that, is resolved in Jesus Christ. Because as God, He has a hand on God, and as man, He has a hand on us. And He brings the two together in one person, His person, so that through Him we are able to ascend to the highest heights. We are admitted into the communion of the Holy Trinity. John chapter, chapter 17 verses 22 to 24. Jesus says, The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may, may be one just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them. Even as you have loved me, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory, which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. This is communion with the triune God. And Christ has done that. He has brought us to life, which means He is the true bread of life. He he feeds the famished soul. With God. Yes, how does he do that? How does he fill the hungry soul? That's what he answers next. He says, He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. Now, the coming here, to be sure, is not a, a coming merely to hear him preach or to receive the ordinances, to be baptized, or to take the Lord's Supper. In other words, this is not merely an external action. But rather, it's a coming to feed and live on Him as bread, which is the same as believing in Him. Notice that coming and believing are synonymous here. He who comes and he who believes, same thing. Except if you really want to press a distinction, the coming denotes the idea of conversion, of embracing Christ as Lord once and for all. Whereas believing, on the other hand, is what one does throughout his entire life. And that may be a valid distinction between the two. But again, it's a distinction without a separation. Because you cannot have one without the other. 
And you cannot come without believing and you cannot believe without coming. Just as you cannot be satisfied with bread alone, you need both solid food and drink. That is why the Lord Jesus talks about never hungering nor thirsting. You say, how does this analogy make sense? I mean, thirst is not quenched by bread, right? How does this make sense? Is there a problem here? And the answer is no, but rather Christ is simply making one part, bread, represent the whole. All of physical necessities. We do the same thing all the time. We, we pray, Lord, give us our daily bread. And by bread, we mean more than just solid food. We mean drink as well, or any other physical need. So Christ is really representing every kind of spiritual need with the idea of bread here. And He's telling the people that if they have Him, they will never again lack the sustenance they need. Not in the sense, to be sure, that once you become a Christian, you never again feel spiritually hungry or thirsty or thirsty. I mean, David says in Psalm 63:1, My soul thirsts for you. And in Matthew 5, 6, the Lord Jesus pronounces a benediction on those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. He says you will be satisfied. So the idea cannot be so much that you won't have any spiritual desires once you are in Christ. No, but rather that He and no one else will meet them all. If somebody gave you, for example, an a unlimited credit card, you might say that you will never go hungry. But that doesn't mean that you'll never feel hungry. It just means that you'll have the means to satisfy your hunger every time it comes. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. He's going to help you in whatever distress you may find yourself in during your pilgrimage. So you don't have, here's the implication, you don't have to depend upon man even some religious teacher who might tell you that he has a revelation from heaven that Christ already or had not provided before. You don't have to depend upon the world either. You don't need some insight from modern psychology or some worldly philosophy to help you resolve spiritual issues. To help you cope with the struggles of the soul. Why hold on to some professional therapy, so-called, when you have Christ? He is enough. And that's the first lesson that He teaches us in this passage. He's a sufficient Savior. He meets all of our needs. Now the second lesson here concerning Christ and salvation is that salvation is a settled affair. Salvation is a settled affair. And you can see that starting in verse 36. He says, but I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. Now the verb to see here refers not so much to the people seeing the Lord with their, their physical eyes, but to their realizing who he is. Remember, these people had actually acknowledged Jesus back in verse 14 as the prophet of whom Moses wrote. And in verse 15, they actually wanted to crown Jesus king. They wanted to... Uh, they had seen his power and, and seeing his power had actually incited their bellies and had piqued their curiosity 
and had aroused their political ambitions, but it had not moved their faith. And he first pointed that out to them in verse 26. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, you you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. In other words, you have seen the symbol, but not the the thing symbolized. You have seen, but have not believed. Why? Well, certainly not because of any defect in the gospel itself. And that is the point that Jesus wants to make here. Because as we saw last week, he is being mocked and rejected by this crowd. The leaders of Israel, on the other hand, are ramping up their persecution of him. And the crowd is saying, give us more signs, which is a sign of their unbelief. But none of that, none of that makes Jesus Christ a failure. Why? Well, look at verse 37. He says, All that the Father gives me will come to me. Notice the repetition of the verb to come. So verse 35 points out that no one who comes to Christ goes away hungry. And no one who sets his faith in Him is lost. Whereas verse 37 on the other other hand points out that it is those whom the Father had given Him that will come to Him in the first place. Wow, now we're getting behind the curtain, so to speak. As it turns out, those who are saved are those who were actually a gift from the Father to the Son in eternity. Acts 13.48 says that they had been ordained to life, to eternal life. Luke chapter 10 verse 20 refers to them as those whose names had been recorded in heaven. And Romans 8 verses 28 and 29 refers to them as those whom God called, whom He foreknew, whom He predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son. So your story, dear saint, does not start at the moment when you became a Christian. When you asked Christ to take you in as His own. No, That is merely the execution of an eternal decree. The implementation of a previous design. The playing out of a written script. Learning about this, by the way, is much like learning about your birth once you have attained to some level of maturity. Because as a young, developing child, all that you know about yourself first is merely that you are alive. But over time, you start to learn exactly how it is that you came into being. How you were formed in your mother's womb. And even into adulthood, you acquire a better understanding of the whole process. So you say with David in Psalm 139 verse 14, I will give thanks to you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, O God. I can barely talk about that psalm without thinking of Earl. In other words, tracing God's handiwork in the genesis of your physical life should and does engender worship. And if that does that, how much more should finding out that He had given you as a gift, that the Father had given you to the Son as a gift in eternity, should Inflame your hearts with praise. That's why Paul opens Ephesians saying, Blessed be the 
Lord our God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every blessing or every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. And uh, 2 Thessalonians 2.13, he says, We should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. So if you have come to Christ, it is because the Father had united you with Him in eternity. And Jesus' point here is that the full number of those who belong to Him will come in time without fail. So the problem is not so much that Jesus is trying here, but He can't save this crowd. Now, instead He is letting them know that only those whom the Father had given to Him will come to Him. Doesn't that make this doesn't this make evangelism so much simpler for us the father has a people all we need to do is share the message and let them come because they belong to him now on the other uh, on the other hand this does imply that there are those who have not been given by the father to the son and in that sense they have been rejected that comes Mostly from Isaiah 41.9. It says, I have chosen you and not rejected you. So you have two kinds of people. As far as the eternal decree of God goes. Those who had been chosen and those who had been rejected. The older word for that is reprobated. Reprobatus in the Latin. Which is the opposite of approbatus. Which is approved. And they're not just a blank mass of people, but specific persons. Jude 4, certain persons have crept in unnoticed. Those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation. And 1 Peter 2.8, they stumble because they are disobedient to the word. And to this doom, they were also appointed. So this is a definite group. A definite group set apart so that in them the glory of God's justice can be made to shine. Romans 9.22 What if God, although willing to demonstrate His wrath and to make His power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? In other words, in other words this world is far better with sin in the ultimate sense than without it. Because through sin, God unleashes the full range of His attributes before a watching creation. He shows mercy to some. He holds others to the strict standard of His justice. Proverbs 16.4 The Lord has made everything for its own purpose, even the wicked, for the day of evil. So in His eternal decree... God determined to leave some, some to their own devices. He determined to pass them by. He chose not to choose them. And that is the sense in which the scripture uh, says that they are hated by God. Romans 9.13, Esau I hated. Not so much that he had some negative feelings toward Esau, but rather that he withheld the grace from 
Esau, which he otherwise gave to Jacob. He leaves Esau, the reprobate, in the very misery into which he had plunged himself. You say, that's not fair. And in response, someone said, certainly it is not equal. But fair, God, if God had to show grace to everyone, then it would not be grace. It would merely be some form of payment, rendering that which is due to them. But God does not owe anybody anything. And in fact, He does whatever He wants with His creation. Matthew 20, 15, Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what I own? Or Romans 9.21, Does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? The Lord does whatever He wants. And in the interest of, of putting the full range of His attributes on display, He has set some apart for the purpose of holding them to justice. He leaves them to, his own, to their own devices. But the elect, on the other hand, God molds by His Spirit so that they will feed on Christ. Again, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And that happens in a variety of ways, to be sure. There are many different ways in which people come into the kingdom. Many different ways through which they uh, enter into the narrow gate. Some are converted suddenly, like Zacchaeus or the thief on the cross. Other people are converted by way of fear and dismay when confronted with the demands of the divine law and their own sin and the judgment to come like the Jews on the day of Pentecost and the Philippian jailer. Others simply hear the voice of Jesus as a sweet voice, as that of one who is bringing good news to them and He has the power, the power to fulfill what He has promised. We can put Philip and Nathaniel under this category. Others simply receive or perceive the truth about their sin and about salvation very quietly. They just know this is the truth. They tend to, to be the more stable believers because it's quiet. It, 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 it's a settled assurance. Others, and perhaps this is most of us, we, we, we are more boisterous in our conversion. We, the conversions takes place at a point in time. There is no such thing as someone who is on his way to becoming a Christian. But, but surely, uh, they become Christians, and yet their spiritual experience uh, is, is all over the place. They go from joy to sorrow, and, and then from struggle to peace, and then from confusion to clarity. And it takes them a while to really settle down in their conviction that Christ has saved them. And again, that's probably the most common experience. But either way, no matter how it is that the Spirit brings you into the arms of the Savior, His point in our text here is that He will take you in when you do come without any hesitation. Notice the second part of verse 37. He says, And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. The expression in the Greek here actually has a double negative. I will not, no, I will not. And the verb to cast out means to expel or to force away. He's saying, he's saying I, I'm not as one whom you come to embrace. And instead of embracing you, I would push you away. 
he, he's saying, I'm not that. I would never do that to you. I would never turn away anyone who commits himself to my faithfulness and my care. Never. After all, this salvation has been settled in eternity. It's anchored in the most immovable rock that there is. You can more easily, and I say this reverently, turn or tear God into pieces than undo the salvation that He has promised for His little ones. And that brings me into the next lesson concerning Christ and salvation that we find in this passage. So not only have we seen Christ as a sufficient Savior and that salvation is a settled affair, but the third lesson in this passage is that perseverance is a guarantee. Perseverance is a guaranteed achievement. Look at uh, verse 38. For I have come down from heaven. Now, by coming down from heaven, the Lord is definitely not saying that He somehow relocated from one place to another. That could never have happened because he, Christ is eternally the omnipresent and, and uh, infinite God who is everywhere at once. So even while He is on earth, He's still reigning in heaven. Can we understand that? No, but it is true. So His coming down here has to do merely with His assumption of the human nature. The Son of God became a man, He says, not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. Now this is not to suggest in any way that the Son and the Father have separate wills, of course, and any less that they are contrary to one another. That cannot be because... The living and true God is one, so there cannot be any more than one will in the Trinity. That's why in Scripture, for example, whenever the Father is said to will something as the Father, the Son is then said to will the same thing as the Son. So, for example, the Father wills for the Son to go, and the Son wills to come. The Father wills to humble the Son, and the, and the Son wills to humble Himself. Those are just two sides of one coin, because the divine persons share the same will, even if each one of them has his own mode of expressing it. Now you say, okay, fine, but remember, the Son is a man also now, which means He has a human will. And that is correct, but even that will is completely resigned to God, not opposed to it. So when Jesus says that he doesn't come to do his own will, he's not saying that he has some, pri that he has some private interest to pursue as a man, and he's laying that aside begrudgingly. No, instead, he is merely accommodating his language here. He is clarifying that he does not have any other desire but to accomplish the purpose of God. And he's going to, to specify what that is in verse 39. Notice the opening of verse 39. This is the will of him who sent me. Now notice how he refers to the Father here. He calls him him who sent me. And that is primarily to underscore the reality of the Father's love for his people. And we need to hear that. Because it is far easier for us to perceive Jesus as a loving Savior, 
After all, we know he died for his people. And, and in the Gospels, we read about his indescribable goodwill as he is ready to heal and, and to take sinners in. However, when it comes to the Father, uh, that's a different story. We often wonder what the heart of the Father might be toward us. Philip himself asked Jesus, Lord, show us the Father and it will be enough for us. So we have a kind of innate struggle in knowing whether the Father loves us. And yet, that should be far from the case. After all, 2 Corinthians 13, 14, Paul talks there about the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. So the Father is even the person of the Trinity whose role is to radiate the divine love. And that is why in 1 John 4, 8, John simply says that God is love. And he's talking there about the Father specifically and personally. Since in verse 9, he distinguishes God from his only begotten Son, whom he sent into the world. And then in verse 10, John says, In this is love, not that we loved God, the Father, but that he loved us and sent his Son as a propitiation for our sins. In other words, the love of the Father comes before. It is antecedent to Christ's coming to purchase our souls. In fact, it is precisely that love that moved him to send the Son in the first place. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. In Romans 5.8, for God demonstrates his own love toward us. In that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So it's not as though the Father, and this is how we like to think of it. As though he needs Jesus Christ to convince him to love us. That's not the case. No, he is eternally burning with love for us. No wonder the Lord Jesus says then, This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. So there is a negative here. Not losing what the Father has given. And then a positive Raising that up. Now the negative part of that statement is actually quite strong in the Greek. It says that of all which he has given to me, I should lose nothing of it. It's, it's a continuation of a pattern that runs through the entire Bible. That salvation does not hang upon human obedience. So there is no way... That a child of God can be lost. None. Now it is true that we do have strong admonitions in scripture. To walk according to the divine law. And not to fall away from God. For example, John 15. Jesus tells the disciples that they have to abide in Him. In His words and in His love. And in Colossians 1.23, Paul writes that we need to continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel. In Revelation 2.10, the Lord tells the church in Smyrna to be faithful until death. And in 1 Corinthians 10.12, Paul even says that if you think that you are standing, watch out lest you fall. Lest you fall. And in uh, Matthew 24 verse 13, Jesus says that it is the one who 
endures until the end, who will be saved. So frankly, we have a call to perseverance here. That's why uh, the better way to speak of it is the perseverance of the saints rather than more uh, common term, eternal security. The point is, we have to persevere. But scripture makes it equally clear that our salvation rests entirely on God's mercy and not our performance. I mean, consider even the nation of Israel as an illustration. They were rebellious to the point of being vomited out of the promised land. And instead of arguing that God must have changed His plan, the prophets actually doubled down on the fact that He cannot break His covenant because His fame, His name, His honor are all tied up to that covenant. He cannot abandon Israel. And one day He'll give them a new heart and He'll put His Spirit within them and He'll put His law on their hearts and He'll open up a fountain for them. And Paul similarly in Romans 9-11 to as he considers Israel's rejection of the Messiah still confesses that the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. So one day they will be saved because His honor is at stake in it. And so it is with our own Redemption. That's why in 1 John 2.19, the Apostle John has to tell believers that those who have fallen away were never actually part of the flock. Because otherwise they would have remained in the flock. You see, he is convinced that God's grace in Jesus Christ is infallible. Therefore, if they fell, they were never part of us. That the true believer will persevere in doing good because the Lord Himself will guard him. And he will not lose anything that the Father has given him. So you don't need to actually worry that you might be lost along the way, believer. You don't have to worry that the ropes that connect you to the anchor will snap in the storm. You don't have to fret that the chain that binds you to your God will break because Christ Himself is holding you with an outstretched arm even until the final resurrection. He says, whatever the Father gives Him, He will raise up on the last day. Now notice, Scripture considers the Lord Jesus in a special way here to be the person of the Godhead who raises up the saints. He had said as much in Chapter 5, verse 25, we saw that. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. And in chapter 11, verse 25, he'll say to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. So Jesus is the one who takes the role of resurrecting His people that He has preserved throughout their pilgrimage. He guards them in life and He guards them in death. Because the assumption here, frankly, is that all of us, should He tarry, have to die. And to use Paul's language in chapter in 2 Corinthians 5.1, our earthly tent has to be torn down. Nevertheless, the promise here is that the Lord Jesus will not leave that tent in the dust any more than He left His own bones in the dust. 
After all, we are his body and he is our head. And if the head is resurrected, then the body will be resurrected as well. So we have a guarantee here to be raised up on the last day. That expression, the last day, by the way, refers generally to the consummation of all things. The eschaton, which starts off with the return of Christ and the resurrection of the saints, where we go meet the Lord in the air and so to be with Him forever. And that should impact your life and my life profoundly today. We should be living in light of that resurrection that we share with our Lord Jesus with our head. So think about it. If Christ departed from the grave, the place of the dead, so should we then be putting away worldliness, which is deadness, and even attachment to ungodly people who are dead, because their stench can easily get passed on to us. And on the other hand, we should be motivated to live holy lives. Romans 6, 4, Therefore we have been buried with Him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. In 2 Corinthians 5, 15, He died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who died and rose again on their behalf. In other words, a godly life is itself a sign that Christ will raise us up on the last day. Because the same power that allows us to walk in faithfulness is the same power that will raise us up on the last day. That's why Paul talked about having the power of Christ's resurrection even as he lived a godly life. Fourth and final point. And again, again, we've been looking at four lessons that this passage teaches concerning Christ and salvation. First, we saw that the Lord is a sufficient Savior. Then we saw that salvation is a settled affair. Then we saw that perseverance is a guaranteed achievement. And lastly, we're taught here that faith is an indispensable component. A faith is an indispensable component of salvation. And that started in verse 40. This is the will of my Father, verse 40, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise Him up on the last day. Now, notice, this is a second statement on the will of God here. In verse 39, the Lord, the Lord talked about the will of God in the context of eternity. Right? In a secret council between the Father and the Son, the Father has given a people to His Son, and none of those people will be lost. Right? But here in verse 40, the Lord is going to talk about God's will as it has been revealed to us. And that will is that we be saved by beholding and believing in His Son. Now the beholding here, of course, is not some physical seeing, but rather a perceiving of His divine power, a spiritual discerning of who Christ truly is. Uh, John chapter 1 verse 14, we beheld His glory. In other words, we recognized His majesty. He wasn't just a, a carpenter from Galilee anymore. He is God in the flesh. So we believed in Him. 
And I hope you see the, the connection here between perceiving Jesus' glory and power and believing in Him, growing in faith. That's why we, we make such a big effort here in, in preaching the Bible and studying the Bible and reading the Bible and singing the Bible. Because we are convinced that the more we see of Christ through the Scriptures, the stronger our faith, our confidence in Him becomes. We're transformed from one degree of glory to the next. Even when we can't see it, we're still being trans transformed. And we live more and more in light of the fact that one day He will raise us up the same way that He was raised. So God's will for us really is that we have faith and that we grow in faith. And this is key in this context. Right? Because you don't want to end up seeking salvation in the realm of predestination. You know, some people convince themselves that they have to figure out first whether God has chosen them or not in order so that they can then throw themselves into the arms of Christ. But that is actually damning. You can't bypass faith and go straight to election. can't do that. You have to go through the door of faith. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, faith is the means by which God executes that decree of election. It's an in indispensable component of salvation. So when you come to the Lord Jesus Christ with a childlike faith, asking Him to be your Savior, it is because you are a gift to Him from the Father. And therefore, He will never, ever cast you out. You know, the Puritan uh, William Gurnall wrote of a heathen who would say to a bird when it flew into his lap seeking refuge from a hawk it was fleeing from. That heathen said, I will not betray you to your enemy, seeing that you have come to me for refuge. And then Gurnall says, how much more or how much less will God betray a soul to its enemy? When it comes to his name for safety, when it says, Lord, I am burdened with sin, either you forgive me or else I'm lost. Either you give me the grace to abandon it or else I will be its slave. So castle me for Christ's sake in the arms of your everlasting strength. And into your hands I commit my spirit. You see, that kind of dependence will draw the almighty power of God in the defense of the sinner. Since he himself, God, has promised that those who come to him for refuge will find strong encouragement. They'll find in him a sufficient savior. They'll have a sure eternal salvation. And they'll endure until the end through faith until that faith is made. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have planned a perfect plan. And we rejoice to see your glory unfold. That we have been invited into the communion of the Trinity to enjoy you forever. You are life and to know you is to live eternally. Thank you. We pray that you would help us to live in that reality. 
In Christ's name. Amen.